Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit and be with us as our advocate. Advocate for our understanding, for our compassion, for our hope. Come and be what you've promised, Jesus, you would be. In his name and for his sake. Amen and amen. It happened for the first time that I remember at a place called Coachella. Now here we're going to have a generational test. Raise your hand if you know what Coachella is. Very good. (laughs) Coachella is a music festival that happens in California every year. It's one of the largest music festivals in the world. It's so large that it's held over two separate weekends. And it features some of the biggest and the most popular, popular music, music stars in all the world. And it's just gigantic outdoor festival. They basically create a village, a town, um, with thousands, tens of thousands of people each weekend. And the tickets are so sought after that they're, ex- I mean, they're really expensive, really expensive, hundreds and hundreds, up to thousands of dollars for this festival. But it was at Coachella in 2012 when it made international news for the performance of two rap stars, Snoop Dogg, who is known to many people, and another rap star by the name of Tupac. And this performance made international news, and there were video clips of it on international news providers all over the world. And it was notable because the artist, Tupac, had died in 1996. And so how was he then performing in 2012? It turns out that through the use of technology, that they managed to create a life-size, three-dimensional hologram, hologram of Tupac, so real that people on the stage were running around and dancing and seemed to be interacting with him in real time. It was a marvel of technology. Now, if you go to Las Vegas, there is another phenomenon happening. It is called the residency. Have you heard of the residency? The residency is where a very famous singer or pop star, usually from decades ago, someone we haven't heard from in recent years, sets up shop each weekend at one of the grand coliseums or theaters in Las Vegas and performs exclusively all their hits and where the seats are so limited and so intimate it could cost two to three thousand dollars a seat. And they sign on for two to three years at a time. And they make so much money from these residencies that they don't have to tour or create new music or make new albums. They just show up on the weekends and do a Friday night, a Saturday night, and a Sunday matinee and they walk away oftentimes with a million dollars net in their pocket. It's not bad work if you can get it. Not bad work if you can get it. And interestingly enough, do you know what the most popular Las Vegas residency is today? It's not Adele. That would be my bet. The most popular residency today is A Night with Whitney Houston. Now, in case you don't know, Whitney Houston was one of the best rhythm and blues singers of the 1970s and 80s and 90s, and she died in 2012 as well. 
and yet you can go and pay thousands of dollars. And I saw a video last night on YouTube of people who paid thousands of dollars to watch Whitney Houston in hologram form sing and dance her greatest hits alongside very real flesh and blood background singers and dancers. It was a miracle of technology. Now, when I think of these things, and I'm thinking of Jesus after his last supper with his disciples, they're sitting with farewell discourses, as we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks. And I'm wondering about all the ways that John's gospel in particular wants to kind of point our attention towards these post-resurrection appearances. Jesus is coming back from the dead and eating and talking and walking with his disciples. And it does make you wonder, in many ways, that some of those disciples, Thomas in particular, struggle because they think they're seeing a ghost. And it makes me wonder, could they be seeing a hologram? But Jesus gives meaning to the words when he says, soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you too will live. Famous people in the past live on in many different ways. They live on because they leave us material artifacts, things like record albums and TV shows, movies. We know who people like John Lennon are even though many of us younger ones never lived in his lifetime because of the interviews and the records and the songs on Spotify that we can listen to. We know who Richard Nixon is, even though many of us never lived in Richard Nixon's uh, lifetime or even in, uh, when he was the president because we can see on videos of him raising his arms and saying, I am not a crook, and him walking from the White House to the helicopter as he resigned and left. We know who Michael Jackson is because of the various movies and concerts that have been left behind. Audrey Hepburn, uh, Humphrey Bogart. We can watch these movies from the 1940s and have a sense of who they are. And I think the same is true of Jesus. Jesus left behind material artifacts, although it's probably more proper to say that what he left behind as a living artifact, a church, And that's one of the things that John's gospel is trying to get at with these post-resurrection appearances. People like Thomas don't get it, and they want physical proof. They want to see with their eyes and touch with their fingers. And Jesus says, do you believe because you've seen me? Well then, blessed are those who do not see but still believe. And that's you and that's me, isn't it? We are the ones that have not seen or touched the body of Jesus thousands of years ago, but still believe. We forget that God is still present with us in the form of spirit. Jesus told his disciples, I will ask the Father and he will send another companion, another advocate who will be with you forever. And this advocate is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor recognizes him. You know him because he lives with you and will be with you. Notice what Jesus says here. I will send you another advocate. Unlike the other gospel writers, Luke and Matthew and Mark, John does not say that Jesus will send us a great helper, a paraclete, an advocate. He says he will send us another. Jesus is our great helper. In John's eyes, Jesus is our great advocate. 
In John's eyes, Jesus is our great companion as we walk in the life of faith. It's not that John doesn't buy into the power of the Holy Spirit, but rather that John perceives Jesus' disciples to be already swimming in a sea of presence and power already. One commentator I read this week posits that one of the interesting things about John's gospel is that he doesn't really point to a trinity as much as he points to a divine quadrilateral. And by that he means that there's something going on in John's gospel where it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Disciple. Contrary to the way that the other gospel writers understand the power of the presence of Jesus in the lives of the faithful, it isn't that we so much copy Jesus, imitate him, but rather we participate. We participate in God. And that's another level of power. We don't make enough of the Holy Spirit in Presbyterian churches. It's a bit scary to us, I think. We're always afraid in Presbyterian churches of things that we cannot stop by saying, the meeting is over, let us pray. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit is one of those things. It's one of those powers. It's the presence of God, and sometimes it becomes unleashed, and there's nothing we can do to get it back in the box. And we have to basically live our lives and figure out how we then... Uh, live with the power of this presence in our lives. But it is the experience of Christ in the world that we can sense, and it is the power of the presence of God who's already close to us and around us and with us. And so it means that we have to train ourselves to recognize it. We have to train ourselves to see it, to sense it. And we have to train ourselves to yield to it when it often prompts us in so many ways. But many of us struggle with this, because we don't sense or see God where we expect to. We don't sense any kind of spiritual dimension in the places where we probably should, and that makes complete sense. We struggle in our world oftentimes to mark out the invisible presence, and in our increasingly secular society, there isn't very much room to discuss things like this, funny enough, even in church, even in church. I once worked with a pastor who would basically berate the congregation at the very end of the service and say, now when you go to morning tea, don't talk about your week. Don't talk about your bike ride or where you went on holiday or vacation. You need to talk about the spirit. The only question you should be asking each other is, what is God doing in your life this week? Where will you see God next week? It was a challenge. It was a challenge to make church church to not be afraid of the spiritual conversations that are so difficult and awkward in our world, that we should at least have one space in our weekly lives where those kind of conversations are normative, where they may seem strange to outsiders, but for us they are life-giving and important. I also want to recognize that not everybody senses God or finds God or senses the spirit of God where we ordinarily do ourselves. Many of you obviously recognize that you come here on a Sunday and there's something about this space and this place and these people and a history that deeply root your sense of God and Christ. And I understand that fully. But do you know, I have friends who find God in technology. And I have friends who find God in nature. 
and I have friends who find God around a dinner table or on Sunday morning at a brunch table with their friends, many of them non-Christians, but they say it's one of the holiest spaces and places and experiences that they could ever have. We forget that God has sent us the Spirit and that the church doesn't own the Spirit, but rather is led by it. And that's the interesting thing about this Spirit. It's invisible, and you might just stumble upon it in all kinds of places. And so I suppose it begs the question this morning, do you have to know God to see God? Must God be seen to be found? If you look at the book of Acts and Paul paying a visit to Athens, Athens, of course, is this great center of Greek literature and art and philosophy and religion. And while he's there, he stumbles upon this shrine, this plaque to an unknown God. And I find it interesting here that in all the time that Paul addresses those elders, those city counselors at the Areopagus, he never mentions the word Jesus once. Of course, this may be due to the fact the Athenians have become offended by Paul's talk. Many people believe that uh, Paul is not here just kind of pontificating, but he's basically shucking for his supper. He knows that he could be put in jail. After all, Socrates was jailed in Athens for leading the people astray by offering them false gods and other gods. And in many ways, it may be that what Paul is offering them feel like new gods, this, these gods of Jesus and repentance and forgiveness. But what does Paul do? And I think this is interesting. He appeals to the Athenians' own sense of the divine. Their penchant for idols may make his skin itch, but he sees something very important in their seeming hobby to collect deities. He even quotes back to them one of their own poets. In him we move and live and have our being. And all the places he might point to find a god, he points to an altar of an unknown god. And so I ask you this morning, what is your altar, or where is your altar, your unknown altar? Where do you sense God's presence that seems a bit strange or odd? Where have you sensed it so vividly that you wish that you could have bottled it up and put it into your pocket and opened it up and remembered it later? Many of us in the Christian tradition have said that when we come to this table, this is one of these strange places and strange acts that we find God. The tradition calls these sacraments, which come from a Latin word, sacramentum, which means a mystery. And as somebody once put to me, a mystery or sacrament is just this idea that you can find God anywhere. You can go to a sunset, you can go to a mountain, you can go to a concert, and you can have a spiritual experience, but other people might not. And yet, when we go to baptism and we go to communion, these are two places where God has promised to always be. This is a place where God has promised to always be. And we encounter God here by faith, by faith, in an unknown way, in a mysterious way, and not one that we can table down to a matter of DNA or biology or theology. This morning I want to ask you to ask yourself in the coming days and weeks this one question. 
Where did I find God today? You might have to train yourself a little bit for this, but I promise it is a worthwhile activity. And as you go, may God bless you, and may God be plain to you through the power of the Spirit. Amen and amen.